All right, we'll open to the first chapter of the book of Ruth, and uh, we're going to take a few moments and read this whole first chapter, and uh, we're going to follow the, the outline that we have there in front of us. So let's begin in verse number one. The Bible says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left and her two sons, and they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelled there about ten years. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have an husband also tonight, and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Now, as we read the first chapter of the book of Ruth, I've decided when we go about this study, I'll go ahead and tell you, there are a hundred ways you can divide the book of Ruth. All of them are very worthwhile. They'll help you to examine it from uh, many different angles. But I believe for the purpose of our study, that as we examine the book of Ruth as a whole, it would help us maybe to examine the book geographically. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, there are basically uh, about three or four scenes found in the book of Ruth. 
Chapter 1, we find ourselves in the land of Moab. And the majority of what takes place in chapter 1 takes place in Moab. You come to chapter 2 and you find yourself in the fields of Boaz. And there a great lesson is taught to us about how the grace of God works in the heart and the life of a lost sinner. In chapter number 3, we find ourselves primarily at the feet of Boaz. And we'll get there here in a couple of weeks, but you know the story of how Ruth uh, is lying there at the feet of Boaz uh, on the threshing floor and the discussion and the conversation that takes place there. And then chapter number 4 finds us basically in the heart and home of Boaz. What I mean by that is in chapter number 4 you find the culmination of the book of Ruth, but also the culmination of all these beautiful pictures and types concerning Israel, concerning the Gentile, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, concerning the dispensational plan of God. Now, I wish I could say everything there was to say about Ruth, uh, but if I had a hundred lifetimes, I couldn't even scratch the surface. I wish I could examine the book of Ruth every way that I would choose to, because there are several ways that you look at it. We sort of discussed that a little bit last week. In the book of Ruth, we find a lot of practical, relevant uh, exhortation for our Christian lives, a lot of example that we can follow. Uh, certainly there's a picture here in type of the sinner coming to know Christ. I believe if we were to give a theological description of uh, the place that the book of Ruth holds, I believe it would be that it shows us how uh, through the backsliddenness of Israel, God chose to bring into and include the Gentile in the covenant by faith that he had made with Abraham. And of course, that's an overarching theme in the Word of God, that uh, the book of Romans teaches us that, that through their falling and through their mistake and through their rejection of the gospel, of course, uh, the gospel is to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Uh, the Jews rejected the truth of the Messiah, uh, and now God is calling out a Gentile bride for his son, Jesus Christ. But what I, I think I'm going to endeavor to do is maybe a little bit of all of those. What I mean by that is we're just going to walk through the book of Ruth, and we're going to study the, the character and person and story of Ruth. And I think as we do that, we'll begin to understand a lot of different facets of those things. So uh, I want us to begin looking at the first five verses, and you can see you'll be able to follow right along uh, in the outline. But before we get to the outline, I want to say a word about the places that God's people went when they backslid. I've got three places listed here. Uh, the first is Egypt. Oftentimes, when God's people would backslide, they'd go to Egypt. In fact, the first time you find Egypt in the Word of God, it's a believer backsliding to go there. When Abraham went down into Egypt. And Egypt is a picture of the world. In fact, it pictures for us bondage, worldliness, and sin. Babylon was another place where God's people went when they backslid. Or let me just put it this way, it's where they stayed when they were backslid. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, uh, many of you, if you're Bible students, you remember uh, from our study on the Minor Prophets that uh, whenever the uh, lower tribe of Judah, or the lower kingdom of Judah, was taken captive in the land of Babylon, uh, that for 70 years they stayed there, and then under uh, Cyrus and under Darius they were given an opportunity to go back and uh, to colonize Israel once again. And uh, a very, very small, something in the neighborhood of fifty to 70,000 Jews actually went back. Uh, the majority of the Jews stayed in Babylon. You say, well, why is that? Well, they had businesses there. They had homes there. They had lives there. It had been bondage under the Babylonians, but under the Persians they had flourished. 
And as they assimilated into that culture, they said it's just easier to stay in Babylon. And so Babylon uh, represents for us cultural and spiritual apostasy, uh, the willingness and choice to live in worldliness. Moab is found a few times in the Word of God. No doubt the book of Ruth is the most prominent place that the book of Moab is or the, the book, listen to me, the land of Moab is found. Uh, the Moabites are, of course, uh, descendants from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. The Ammonites uh, and the Moabites were the result of that incestuous relationship. I had somebody ask me, you know, you talk about all these names, and we'll say a word about them here in a moment. Names mean something in the Bible. And uh, the names of places mean things. And, uh, of course, Bethlehem means uh, house of bread, and uh, Ephratah means fruitfulness, and Judah means praise, and all those things are significant. Somebody asked me, I said, what does Moab mean? Uh, get ready, I'm going to blow your mind. You ready? Moab means son of a father. <laughs> I wish it meant something more interesting than that, but it just doesn't. Son of a father. Uh, of course, we know the term Ab uh, in relation to the, to the word Abba that we find in the New Testament, which is the Greek transliteration of the Old Testament uh, rendering uh, of that term for father. Uh, Moab, I don't know that the name is all that greatly significant, but certainly it holds a special role in the Bible. Listen to what Jeremiah said about Moab. Uh, or, of course, this is God speaking, but in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 48:11, the Lord says, Moab hath been at ease from his youth. And he hath settled on his lees, and he hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him, and his scent is not changed. Now there are three basic characteristics that are listed there about the land of Moab. The first is apathy. He's been at ease from his youth. In other words, Moab was a place where you didn't have to worry, you didn't have to lock your doors when you went to bed at night in Moab. It was a place that was relatively comfortable, and it was a place that was at ease. Not only apathy, but complacency, and he hath settled on his leads. You wouldn't find a lot of go-getters in Moab. Uh, you know, you know, the more I describe this, the more it sounds like Mayberry. Somebody say amen to that. I, I don't know why that is. It tells you something about Barney, you know, but complacency. Uh, in other words, uh, God wasn't moving in Moab. Now, I say that with, with a little bit of pause, because God's moving everywhere. But what I mean is you wasn't having a revival down in Moab. Uh, there wasn't any great steps towards God taking place in Moab. They were settled on their lees. And uh, hath not been emptied from vessel to vessel, neither hath he gone into captivity. Therefore his taste remained in him, and his scent is not changed. A staleness was about the place. Nothing ever changed in Moab. It was the kind of place where a, a believer could go to hide from his responsibility to serve the Lord. Uh, let me say this with great care, okay? I know a lot of churches that are a lot like Moab. I, I know a lot of churches where folks go just to hide out. And I'm not saying that little churches are good or big churches are bad. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just saying, and there's people that do that in small churches just like big church. But I'm saying there's a lot of folks that they go to, they go to church and they just go to get lost in the crowd and to hide, go to a place with some anonymity. I think that can be a dangerous thing. I think God can use those great and vast congregations, but I think there's a great responsibility that comes with being in them and a great danger that comes with that, which is that uh, you have to have a lot of personal accountability. Because oftentimes you miss, folks don't notice. Uh, you're not there. Nobody, nobody even knows that you were missing. 
And I think there can be a great danger in that. I think we have to be very, very careful, uh, even in church our size. We're not a big church, but even in church our size, we have to uh, make sure that we're allowing God to stir us and move us, and we're not just hiding out and uh, and growing complacent. So that was God's description of Moab. You say, what happened with Moab? What was the kind of people that were there? What was God's opinion of them? Well, Psalm 60 and verse 8 says this, Moab is my wash pot. We talked a little bit about that yesterday morning. Uh, a wash pot at this time, and uh, the, of course they didn't have uh, faucets. So if they wanted to wash their dishes or wash their clothes or anything, they had to go out and fill a tub with water, or they had a tub in their house, and they would have to go and get water and put it in it. And uh, after they'd spend a little while washing clothes or spend a little time washing dishes, you can just imagine what that water must look like. And it would probably be very familiar for us to say this. It's almost like God is saying that Moab is like my trash can. Moab is like an old stagnant, stale pond where nothing but death and disease grow. So that's the picture God gives us of Moab. The book of Ruth is really a story about family. And the tragic occurrence in the first five verses is this, that a family of God, God's people, that had every opportunity to live for the Lord in Bethlehem, Judah, when a little bit of famine came along, they got up and left and went down to God's trash can. I've seen it happen time and time again, sometimes because of, of problems taking place, but sometimes it's not because of problems, sometimes it's because of prosperity. Now, I'm not against prosperity. I mean, hey, you know, if you don't like your prosperity, you just give it to me, okay? That'll be okay. I'm not against people having things. I'm not against them having a, a good life, but I've known a lot of people. They'd serve God when things were bad, but as soon as everything got comfortable again, they was ready to wander and ready to stray. Well, some are like that. Some are like Elimelech and his family. The name Elimelech means God is my king. But as we find, oftentimes the name of someone in Scripture is a great insight into their personality and their walk of faith. But sometimes it is a name of irony. And sometimes that name of irony is given as a lesson. Gideon, for instance, his name means mighty warrior. Uh, when you find Gideon, he don't look that way, but God made him a mighty warrior. So let's begin in verse number 1, and we'll just say a word about each of these things in these verses. The Bible says, Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Here, when we examine this journey, we see first off the purpose of the journey they took. What drove them from the house of bread? The Bible says it was a famine. Now let me go ahead and tell you that God's promise will always take care of you. But that doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy either. Uh, God never promised you a new house or a new car. God never promised you. I know that's what uh, a lot of TV preachers say. But the Bible says of the Son of Man that he had not where to lay his head. And so the truth of the matter is, uh, God is not going to promise you that things aren't going to be difficult sometime. Here they are in the land and the, the house of bread and famine comes. I promise you they weren't expecting that. But they had a choice at that point. What were they going to do? Now, let me ask you something. Are you ready to give up on God every time it looks like things aren't going to work out? There's a great danger in us running from our problems. Can I remind you of something? You're safer in Bethlehem in a famine than you are in Moab during harvest time. Or can I say it this way? You're a lot safer in the will of God, wherever that takes you, than you are in absolute comfort and prosperity being out of the will of God. I mean, there's no doubt God would have took care of them. 
I mean, they didn't call Bethlehem the house of bread for no reason. Uh, the fertile fields surrounding that suburb, just six miles south of Jerusalem, the suburbs that surrounded it were just, uh, the fields that surrounded the suburb were just covered up in grain fields. And it was not common for a famine to be in the land. Maybe that is uh, a good reason that they turned tail and ran. You know, sometimes we get so used to comfort that we don't know how to handle things when, when they're difficult. A lot of commentators believe that Elimelech may have got up and left with his family because he was a man of means, and he had been used to a life of comfort. Let me tell you something. Prosperity is killing us in this country. And I'm not saying I want everybody to be poor, and I'm not saying I want to... I'm just merely saying, Christianity, we don't know what it's like to be persecuted. Most of us, we don't know what it's like to, to do without the way that our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents did. Uh, most of us wouldn't know what it's like to, to not have food in our refrigerator or, or a roof over our head. But let me tell you something. Christians have fell on harder times than that in times past. And we better get used to the idea that, that this walk of faith is just that. It's a walk of faith. And not get excited, not get nervous, and not get jumpy every time something looks like it's not working out like we hope. So we see the purpose of their journey. Verse number 2 tells us the place of their journey. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. Naomi's name means pleasant. The name of his two sons, Malon, uh, which means puny, and uh, Chilion, which means sickly. Ephrathites, and Ephrata means fruitful. Of Bethlehem, Judah, which means the house of bread and praise. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. Now, I'm not going to say a lot about it because we said it in the introduction. But needless to say, they left the place where God dwelt. I'm glad God could find them all the way down in Moab. I'm glad no matter how far I get out of the will of God, God knows where I'm at. But let's not lie to ourselves. There are certain places that God comes down and visits. It does not say that, that the Lord visited his people in Moab, right? It says the Lord visited his people in Bethlehem in giving them bread. In other words, God didn't bless his people in their sin. God blessed the place of blessing, and say, get out of your sin and come back home. Let us not ever become so delusioned that we think that just because we're saved, the blessed hand of God will always be upon us, even when we're living in sin. I think that Naomi was sort of complaining at the end of the chapter, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but I think she was also being realistic when she said this, I went out empty or full, and I came home empty. Her sin took a toll on her and her family. In fact, we see that in verse number 3. We see the penalty of their journey. The Bible says, And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Let me tell you something. She didn't plan that when she went to Moab. But we never plan for the consequences of sin. We never plan for the consequences of sin. Let me tell you something. The, the family that is that is bearing their children, that have, that have got out of the will of God and and took to drugs or took to drink or whatever it might have been. They didn't plan on doing that. They didn't bounce that little baby on their knee and say, one of these days you won't bury me, but I'll bury you. They didn't plan that. And I, I'm not being critical. I'm not being cruel. Uh, I'm not saying that, there was, that, that the sins of every child are due to the, to the lack of spirituality upon the parent. That's not what I'm saying. But in their condition, in their situation, the reason Elimelech died was because Elimelech led them out of the will of God. Naomi followed dutifully along with him. Naomi didn't plan that. Malon, Chilion, they didn't plan to be burying their father. They were not expecting that, but sin always has a penalty. That's not to say that every bad thing that happens is God's chastisement for sin. But, you know, we spend so much time 
trying to, to, to proclaim that every bad thing that happens is not the result of sin. But I think sometimes we neglect to remind people that when you live in sin, bad things do happen. They do happen. That doesn't mean that everybody that falls on hard times because they got sin in their life, but that doesn't mean that people that live in sin, that it doesn't bring them on hard times. It absolutely does. There was a penalty to their sin. Verse number 4, we see the perpetuation of their journey. Well, they didn't expect to stay there, but look what happened in verse number 4. It says, And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. Now, we do know what the name Orpah means. Orpah means, uh, actually what it means is, is a deer or a fawn or a hind. But oftentimes when the deer or the fawn or the hind is seen in scriptures, it symbolizes for us athleticism and uh, spryness and healthiness. I do not know which uh, boy it was that, that married who. The Bible does not tell us. Uh, but it is interesting to me that these two boys who are named puny and sick. Now, I don't think you'll find that in a baby name book. They were probably named that because of the condition when they were born. And uh, it, I, I, it's astounding to me that they found these women, Orpah, named Athletic. Named, named Spry, named Healthy, and then Ruth. And, and I can give you a hundred definitions for the name of Ruth. depends on who you ask about it. But I will say this. Every definition for the name of Ruth is always positive. It's always positive attributes uh, for the female gender. For instance, sometimes, some people say it means beautiful or, or attractive. Some people say that it means friendly. Some people say it means congenial, uh, so on and so forth. But let's just put it this way. As far as Moab was concerned, Malon and Chilion was probably a four, and Orpah and Ruth, they is an eight or a nine. And so they marry these girls, and the Bible says this in the next phrase, and they dwelled there about ten years. Let me tell you something. I hate to see God's people get out and sin, but I especially hate to see it when they start putting down roots. It was bad enough they had left the land and the house of bread, but now Naomi is allowing her children to intermarry with these Moabites, which was forbid according to Jewish law. And she allows them to intermarry. And what happens as sin begins to sink its claws? And, and here's what I want you to gather. And I, I'm not trying to excuse Malon and Chilion in any way because they made their choices. But sin looked pretty attractive to them. Sin looked pretty to two sick old boys like Malon and Chilion. I'm sure these two young girls look beautiful. We know that by Orpah's name, she was probably very athletic. We know by Ruth's name, she was probably very beautiful. We know that Boaz speaks of her beauty later on. Sin looked pretty attractive to them. But what's the end result? We see the product of their journey. Verse number 5, And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them. The woman was left of her two sons and her husband. At the end of the day, hey, listen, when it, sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Doesn't matter how beautiful it looks, doesn't matter how appealing it is, sin bringeth forth death. The wages of sin are death. Now the story could have ended there, but it did not. We see a tragic occurrence in the first five verses, but I want you to notice this testing opportunity. Now they're at a, a true crisis point. Do you know what a crisis is? A crisis, we think of a crisis as a calamity, but the actual definition of the word crisis is being at a place of decision. They are at a crisis point. 
Now Naomi, she is a broken widow. She's buried her husband. She's buried her two sons. She stands there with Ruth and with Orpah, with no future, with no plan, with no idea of what to do. She is uh, miles away from home. And then something happens. Verse number 6. We see a testimony from home. The Bible says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab how that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. Let me tell you something. If ever there is an indication of the grace of God, it is whoever this, this secret messenger is. We do not know how Naomi heard this. Maybe it was just the rumor mill got churning, or maybe there was somebody. I sort of like to believe this. You don't have to, but I, I sort of like to believe that maybe there was somebody in Bethlehem that remembered Naomi. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a friend. Uh, maybe it was an acquaintance. Maybe it was somebody that had worked alongside in the fields with Elimelech. But somebody, after the famine had broken, after the crops began to sprout up, after the blessings began to flow again, somebody remembered Naomi and said, you know, Naomi and Elimelech and Malon and Chilion are down in Moab. And they left here because of the famine, but there's no famine anymore. Let's go back and tell them that there's bread here now. Can I tell you something? I... You've heard this before, that Baptists are the only people in the world that shoot their wounded, right? I know people mess up. I know it's frustrating to watch people messing up. Let me tell you something. If ever there was any group of people that's in a good situation to deal with people that's messed up, it's you and I. You know why? Because John said this, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let me tell you something. If you got children out of the will of God, you say, what do I tell them, preacher? Tell them, tell them that, that God's visited his people. Tell them that God still loves them. Tell them there's, there's a place called home. Tell them that God will forgive them, that God cares about them. Now, some of you say, well, preacher, my, my children are out in the world, and they don't believe they're living wrong. I know. I know something like that. But it won't be long before they'll wake up in the pig slop and come to themselves. There will come a point. They may not admit it to everyone around them. They may not even be willing to admit it to you. But if they have a sane mind in their head, they'll come a point where they'll see that sin has been no good for them. You say, Preacher, I'm tired of waiting. Well, I know, but you'll just have to be patient. Pray for them. Preacher, I want them to change right now. I know you do, and I do too. But you can't make that decision for them. But what you can do, don't ever forget about them. Don't ever quit praying for them. Don't ever give up on them. Because one of these days, as they stand broken beside the freshly dug graves of their hopes and dreams, you need to be there to say, hey, there's bread in Bethlehem for you. Hey, there's a home for you. Hey, God loves you. He'll forgive you. Somebody came. Somebody told Naomi. So the testimony is given. Naomi makes this decision. She says, I will go back. And they begin to make the trip home. I do not know at what place in the journey I have sort of an opinion but verse number 7 tells us something about the trip back. It says, Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return unto the land of Judah. Now they are all three going back. Naomi seems to be comfortable with this. I do not know where on the road they made this decision, but I have sort of an idea. You have to understand that for Naomi, there was no sign of her sin except for those two girls walking with her. She could have gone back to Bethlehem. She could have told them, well, we went down to Moab for a few months, then we went on to somewhere else, and we were off somewhere else in the land of Israel. 
Maybe she could have lied. Maybe she could have covered up her sin. But my personal belief is somewhere along the road, she began to realize how it would look when she walked through the gates of that city with those two girls in tow. And so she makes this decision. She turns around and she gives them this temporal advice. Verse number 8. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grants you that you may find rest each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and went. Now this was a crisis moment for Naomi, but she has made her decision. Now it is a crisis moment for Ruth and Orpah. And I want you to stop and consider the advice that Naomi gives. Naomi knows Bethlehem. She's lived there. It's her home. She knows it's the place where God visits his people. She knows there's nothing for those girls spiritual in Moab. But this backslidden, bitter, and out of the will of God believer turns and looks at these two lost girls and says, Go back, because you'll have a happier future in Moab than you would in Bethlehem. Let me say that oftentimes, and I touched on this yesterday morning, oftentimes the worst testimony in the world to a lost person is a backslidden Christian. A backslidden Christian can do more damage to the cause of Christ than a thousand infidels could ever dream of. You know why? Because Naomi's word meant something. She had been to Bethlehem. It sounds as though she's speaking from personal experience. Really, what she's speaking from is personal expediency. These girls were baggage to her. She was ashamed to have them come back. But the advice that she gives them is temporal advice. When she says, go to your mother's house and then go find rest in a husband, she's not saying, go home and live off the inheritance of Malon and Chilion. Very likely, there was no inheritance. They were sojourners in the land of Moab beyond whatever uh, just money they would have had on them, uh, whatever they had survived off of for the last ten years. There wouldn't have been an inheritance. The inheritance was back in Bethlehem. So she's not telling them, go home and live out the rest of your days in widowhood. Rather, she's saying, go home to your mothers and live there until you can find a husband. You're still young, and you're still beautiful, and you'll find a husband, and you'll live out happily in Moab. Oftentimes, the devil speaks to backslidden believers, because that's the lie that the devil tells the lost, that you'll have a happier future in the world than you could ever have in, in, in the heart and home of Boaz, or let's say it this way, in the family of God. She gives them advice. If there was no God in heaven, maybe it would have been good advice, but there is a God in heaven. Bethlehem was the place where their redemption lay, and she gives them this temporal advice. What is their response? We see the tenacious affection. And I sort of, sort of struggled with how I wanted to word that, but I chose that intentionally. Verse number 10, And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. In other words, they look at Naomi and they say, Naomi, no, we're going with you. Now, I don't know how things were worded. I don't know if it was Orpah who said that or if it was Ruth who said that. I don't know if God is giving us a synopsis of the conversation that they had when he tells us that in verse number 10. But I know this, that something changes in the language of those girls between verse 10 and what Ruth says in verse 16. Because by the time we get to verse 16, Ruth considers Naomi's people her people. In other words, at this point, the distinction that they are making and the affection they have is tenacious, but it's still superficial. You say, why is that important to note, preacher? It's important to note because these girls are going to go two different ways. 
Orpa was saying the same thing that Rupa was saying. Uh, Rupa. <laughs> that Ruth was saying. Orpa Rupa, right? Orpa was saying the same thing Ruth was saying. But here's the problem. Orpa wasn't feeling and thinking and trusting and believing the same thing that Ruth was. So they say, no, we're going to go with you. Naomi doesn't accept that. And we see this tempting occasion take place. This is Naomi's attempt to convince them to go back. In other words, now how many of you how many of you had mothers? Anybody? Okay. If you had a mother, then you're gonna identify with what I'm about to tell you. I'm a twenty eight year old man, okay? Uh I have a home, I have a wife, I have a child, I have two hands wherewith I am able to feed myself and to prepare food. Yet every time I cross the threshold into my mother's house, the first twenty minutes is occupied with a fierce argument and her attempt to try to forcibly administer food or drink down my throat. Any of you have a mama like that? And I don't know why, but after 28 years, she still thinks I'm lying to her when I say I'm okay. I'm telling you right now, I mean, whether they'd like it or not, I'd feel comfortable. i got a key to their house. If I wanted to, I'd be fine going in when they're not home and fixing every scrap of food that's in their refrigerator. If I wanted to do that, I know they'd bear no resentment or ill will. But still, when I go in, first thing she always says is, are you hungry? Can I get you something to eat? Now, Mama knows I'm going to say no to that, because I always do. But I'll give you, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but like, it is a common misperception amongst people that are not, uh, you know, natives of the South, that people in the South, I mean, when they offer you that, that they don't mean that. We absolutely mean that. We're absolutely always trying to feed you. But there's that initial, do you want this? And I'll say no. This is what has just happened. Naomi is thinking to herself, well, they're just being kind. Well, they're just, they're just trying to show me they love me. Well, they're just saying that for my benefit. And so Naomi's gonna keep trying to make them biscuits and grilled cheese sandwiches here. We see her appraisal of the spiritual, verse number 11. Naomi said, turn again, my daughters. Why will ye go with me? Now let's stop and think about what she just asked. Ruth Orpah, why are you wanting to go to Bethlehem? She begins to explain and expound on that thought in the next few moments. But what she's basically saying is, girls, there's nothing for you in Bethlehem. Now, was that true? We know that it was not true. In fact, we know that the only future that Ruth could ever hope for was found in no other place than Bethlehem. But as a backslidden and bitter individual, and you say, preacher, why do you say that about Naomi? Because she says that again about herself. She says, the Lord hath dealt, uh, hath afflicted me. He's dealt bitterly with me. She says, call me not Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. She's saying, I am an angry, empty, broken, bankrupt, bitter individual. Call me that, because that's what I am. And as such an individual, she cannot see through spiritual eyes. She sees only through the temporal. And by the way, that's a good symptom of being bitter. When you can only see things through the temporal, and so she says, girls, there's nothing for you in Bethlehem. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. Look at her assessment of the situation. She says, why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry for them until they were grown? 
Would you stay from for, for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. She says this, the only thing you could have happiness in would be a husband, girls, and I can't give that to you. Let me tell you something. It is a great day when you and I realize that we are not the answer to anyone's problems, but we do know the person that is the answer to everyone's problems. Her assessment of the situation is this. Can I give it to you in one word? Hopeless. She says, if I should have hope. You know what she's saying? I don't have any hope. I don't have any hope. I'm going back to Bethlehem to die. Now, I'll, I'll admit to you there's a, there's a note of deception in this. I believe that she had ulterior motives. But I do believe that she sincerely believed that for Ruth and Orpah, if they came back to Bethlehem, they would not be accepted there. They would be rejected as, as Gentiles, as unclean, and they could never find happiness there. But here's the thing. Happiness is not found in, in a full pantry and a big bank account. Happiness is not found in financial or fiscal security. I mean, I'm not opposed to having any of those things, but don't think that's going to make you happy. Don't think that's going to give you joy, because it won't. Naomi gives a pretty poor assessment of the situation. You know what it all comes down to? It comes down to her opinion of the sovereign God. Verse number 13, the very end, she says, It grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. What she is saying by that language is, is twofold. One, she's saying the hand of the Lord is no help to me. But then two, she's saying literally that God has set his hand against me. Now, what does the Bible tell us about the chastisement of God? The book of Hebrews says this, Every son whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. No chastening for the present time uh, is joyful, seemeth to be grievous, but afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. You see, to a backslidden Christian, nothing looks right. And to a backslidden Christian, because they have the wrong idea about God, they have the wrong idea about everything. And what she's basically saying to to Ruth and Orpah is God is angry at me because he's angry at me. You've had to suffer and pay for it. No, Naomi, God's not angry with you. God just knows you can't be blessed in the land of Moab. Let me tell you something, when we get out of the will of God, God's not angry with us. But that hand of the Lord that we think has gone out against us, it's not gone out against us, it's gone out to get us. <laughs> the hand of the Lord didn't go, I mean, he reached all the way down into Moab to bring her back. And it may have taken the death of her husband, it may have taken the death of her sons, but God still spoke to her heart in that foreign land. Why? Not because God hated her, but because God loved her. When God chastens us, let me tell you something, if God really hated us, you know what he'd do? He'd just let us alone. He'd just let us alone. Sometimes the Holy Spirit just speaks to my heart, and I'll mention it sometimes even in prayer. Lord, thank you for dealing with us. You don't have to deal with us. The very fact that God convicts me is, is an expression of his love for me. The, the easiest thing in the world would be for God to just wash his hands of me, but God doesn't do that. And listen, if God's dealt with you, it's not because he hates you, it's because he loves you. So that's her improper opinion of the sovereign. Now the choice has to be made by Orpah and Ruth. And we see this in verse number 14 during this tempting occasion for them. It says in verse 14, And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. Now the first thing we notice is a false production. <laughs> 
on the part of Orpha. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you that if the Lord will let me, I'm preaching on this Sunday morning, so I'm going to try not to give you too much. Uh, come Sunday morning, you'll get some of it. But basically, uh, she put on a real good show, but at the end of the day, she always had it in her mind to leave. She put on a real good show. She, she cried, she wept right along with Ruth. But what was the end result? She kissed her mother-in-law, and then she turned around, and she left. Now, we have to be very, very careful. I believe God's children can backslide, don't you? I believe they can. I believe they can get out of the will of God. I believe they can live uh, like the world. But I do believe this. When a person gets saved, an eternal change is made in them. And a lot of the verses that people struggle with in the Bible, especially where it talks about turning back, falling away, Demas hath forsaken me. What does that mean? I believe are answered in the person of Orpah. I believe Orpah gives us an example of someone that is faced with truth, that is moved by truth, but ultimately turns around and walks away. In fact, listen to the definition that's given in verse number 15, and I want to say something about this again as it pertains to Ruth. But listen to what Naomi says. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law has gone back unto her people, doesn't just stop there, and unto her gods. If we have any question as to whether Orpah really got saved or not, really trusted, really believed the Lord, really had righteousness imputed unto her or not, I believe it's answered in verse number 15. She went back to her gods. I believe people can can turn away. I believe people can do wrong. But I believe that they won't live wrong and God not deal with them. I believe when a Christian gets out of the will of God, that's not the end of the story for them. When we come to the end of verse number 14, we hear nothing else about Orpah for the rest of the word of God. Why? Because there's nothing else to be said about it. If Orpah had been a child of God, the story wouldn't have ended there. Now, we might not know all of the history or all of the details, but God would have continued to deal with Orpah. The distinction is, you say, preacher, how do I know if somebody really is saved or not? And you know people, and I know people like this too. I, I, I've led people to the Lord, and you think afterwards, man, I hope they really got it. I hope they really understood. Man, you know, I really worry. How can I know whether they were genuine or not? Let me say two things about it. One, it's not up to you to decide. But number two, here's a good acid test for your own personal peace of mind, for your own curiosity, which is this. When they get out of the will of God, does God chastise them? Because every son whom the Lord loveth, and I believe he loves every son he has, every daughter he has, the Lord chasteneth. God's children can't do wrong and get by with it. So we see here the false production, but in verse number 14 we find a fixed purpose. What does Ruth do? Ruth doesn't let go. We talked about that yesterday morning. Ruth had got a hold of something real, and she said, I'm not letting go of it. She clave under her mother-in-law. I think I got in trouble yesterday telling that mother-in-law joke. I won't retell it, amen, but if you were here, you heard it. She clave to her mother-in-law. She would not let her go. I think she loved Naomi, but I don't think it was about Naomi. I think it was about Bethlehem. I believe Ruth understood that this was the crisis point. If she walked away from Naomi at this moment, she'd never see her. She'd never see Bethlehem. She'd never see the blessing of Jehovah, the God of Israel. At this point, Ruth is making her decision. She's turning her back on Chemosh, the God of the Moabites, and Moloch, the God of the Ammonites. She's turning away from these false gods, and she's casting her lot with Jehovah. What a beautiful picture of what happens when the sinner gets saved. 
Let me tell you something. There's a thousand ways to, to examine and really a thousand ways to present what happens when a sinner gets saved. And I think all of them have merit. I, I think there's, there's beautiful truths. You can look at a thousand examples in Scripture. Uh, sometimes it's people casting away their sickbed. Uh, sometimes it's, it's people uh, throwing off their old garments. Sometimes it's people giving up their old job, an old way of life, like it was with Zacchaeus. There's a thousand ways it's pictured in the Word of God. But I think this is a pretty good one right here, too. She's saying, I am clinging to everything that represents the God of Naomi. He is my only hope, and I'm looking to him, I'm looking to Bethlehem, I'm looking to the house of bread to meet my needs. When a sinner gets saved, here's what they're doing. They're saying this, I'm not going to trust in anything else to get me to heaven. I don't think think you become a Christian by, by joining the Baptist church. I don't think you become, well, not just I don't think, the Bible declares plainly. It's not through church membership, it's not through baptism, not through any of those things. It's not through promising God you're never going to do anything wrong again. We don't find any promises, really, on Ruth's behalf uh, at this very moment. If you want to ask my opinion, I believe this was the moment that, that she came to know God. What happened? She's saying, I'm not going to trust in any other gods. Jehovah and Him alone is going to be my God. She has a fixed purpose in verse 14. And then we see a final plea in verse 15. Naomi says, Ruth, what for? What for? What are you hanging on to? Your sister-in-law went back. Isn't that good enough for you? Why don't you go back with her? We see a tempting occasion. And then finally we see a triumphal objective. Now, I'm not going to deal with every one of these, and here's why, because I preached every one of them yesterday morning. But I do think that the declaration recited is worth noting. because. What Ruth is basically saying is my life will be forever different. Again, she did not say I'm never going to do anything wrong. She didn't say I'm always going to do my uh, my absolute best. She didn't say I'm never going to mess up again. But she says this. She says, whither thou goest, I will go. We see a new persistence in verse number 16. She will not be convinced to turn back. By the way, you know, a lot of times... I've seen in, in the life of a sinner, that, that's the deciding thing. Uh, there's been a lot of sinners that have been at the brink of salvation many times. You know what made the difference when they decided that nothing was going to stop them from coming to know Christ? I'm not saying they had to try real hard. I'm not saying it had anything to do with their iron and resolute will. But I'm saying this, that nobody gets saved without wanting to be saved. Nobody gets saved without wanting to be saved. That's, uh, there's not a lot of prerequisites for salvation, but one of them is this. You've got to want to be saved. I, I'm not a big, a big advocate, and I, and I don't know. I may make somebody mad saying this, but I, I think it needs to be said. I don't think it will, but if it does, oh well. <laughs> I, I'm not in for this whole thing of dragging people down the aisle. Let me tell you something. If God can't get them to that altar, then you getting them there ain't going to do anything. Now, I'm not opposed to people going with someone down to an altar. I'm not even opposed to people saying, hey, if I go with you, will you go? I'm not opposed to that. But you've seen it, and I've seen it before, not in this church, but I've seen it in other places, revival meetings and stuff. Some old boy that comes in, sits on the back row, and uh, isn't a lick interested in anything that's going on. He isn't under conviction. And uh, somebody goes down, grabs him by the arm, and tries to drag him down the aisle. Let me tell you something. If he don't want to be saved, he ain't going to be saved. It is that simple. Uh, God is not willing that any should perish. But let me tell you something. They have to be willing to not perish if they're ever going to be born again. She says, you're not going to talk me out of it, Naomi. 
there's no purpose. A new persistence, a new path, whither thou goest, I will go. A new protection, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. She's basically saying, Naomi, I don't care what part of town you wind up in, I'll go with you, because I know God will protect me. Thy people shall be my people, a new people, and thy God my God, a new providence. Verse number 17, there's a new plan for her life. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. She's saying that that's where, that is going to be the end of my life. I'm going to go wherever you go, Naomi, and I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. Then we see a new purpose, verse 17, uh, the very end. Uh, if the Lord do so to me, or the Lord do so to me, and more also if aught but death part thee and me. She's saying this is going to be the purpose and driving force in my life. So we see the declaration recited. Well, verse 18, the decision is resolved. When she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. She finally said, well, fine. Ruth, if you want to go with me, go with me. Verse number 19, we see the duo returning into Bethlehem. So they two went until they came to Bethlehem. And then notice this. This is interesting. We see the delinquent remembered. You would think after 10 years and all of the effects the sin had had on Naomi, you'd think she could sneak into town without anyone knowing. But the Bible says this, Verse number 19, And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. And they said, Is this Naomi? That's a very uh, provocative question. You say, Why is that, preacher? Because when it says they were moved about them, you know what it literally means? They, they congregated around them. They got around in a big group. And you know what the main thing being whispered was? They'd look one another and they'd say, this can't be Naomi. Well, it looks like Naomi, but look how old she's got. It looks like Naomi, but look at the worry lines on her face. It looks like Naomi, but look at the sunken cheeks. Look at the, the grieved eyes. Look at the sadness in her countenance. Could this be Naomi? Let me tell you something. Sin can take you to a place where people that love you can't even recognize you anymore. Not only physically, but emotionally, personality-wise. Something that i found to be consistent in the life of people that I love that are saved is when they get out of the will of God, they quit going around God's people. I, I've got uh, people that I've loved. I've had friends that got out of the will of God, started living out of the will of God. And let me tell you something, I, I'm not much, but I, as a preacher, people do identify me with the things of God and with ministry and with being a Christian, of course. And uh, i found this, that oftentimes when... When God's people get out of the will of God, my phone quits ringing. And I quit hearing from them. And they start behaving funny and acting funny. And I'm left saying to myself, is this Naomi? Is this that pleasant person that I once knew? How could she be this way? If a name evokes the idea or characteristics of a person and of their life, then, then Naomi was probably one of those bubbly, pleasant people to be around. She was probably one of those people that always had a song on her lips and always had a spring in her step. But look how far sin has taken her. Is this Naomi? Is this that pleasant woman that we once knew? And Naomi speaks. We see the distinction rejected. Verse number 20. She says, call me not Naomi. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She says, I'm not happy anymore. I don't have joy anymore. 
I'm not the bubbly and pleasant wife and mother that you once knew, but now I am the cold and angry widow that stands before you today. And she recognizes the damage that has been done in her life. Verse 21, she says, I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. I'm going to tell you something. There, there's, I, I've told you before, I could, preach, I could preach for years on the book of Ruth, and I think that right there is a pretty good sermon in and of itself. She said, I went out full, but sin robbed everything from me. But evidently God still loved her, because there's two ways of looking at this. Naomi's saying, God hath brought me home again empty. But can I say that we could maybe say this, God hath brought me home again empty. But hey, God loved her enough to bring her home. <laughs> I'm glad God will bring us home. We may have to go home empty, but God will bring us home again. Can, can I say what I think Naomi was trying to say? I think she was trying to say this. Ten years in Moab, and I don't have anything but heartache to show for it. I come home to you with less than I left with. I left with a husband. Sin took him from me. I left with children. Sin took him from me. I left with maybe riches, maybe joy. I left with youth. I left with vitality. And I left with joy and happiness. And I come home to you empty. And I am no longer Naomi. I am Mara. Because I'm bitter over what has happened. We see the damage recognized. She says, Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab. Now, one of the things that I love about the book of Ruth is you'll find that that the last verse in every chapter is is sort of like a, 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 a sneak preview of the next thing. You know, how many of you watch TV? It's okay. If you're, if you're too spiritual to raise your hand, that's fine. But I watch TV sometimes. And uh, sometimes we'll watch a program, and they'll say this. They'll say this. On next week's, you know, whatever. I don't know what you watch, but, you know. On next week's program, or uh, for next week, or until next week, or here's a sneak peek at what's coming up next week. We have a beautiful note that chapter 1 ends on where God does that. Here she stands broken, bitter, and bankrupt. But we have the dawning of redemption mentioned at the end of verse 22 because it says this, When did they come back? And they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Can I share with you a thought? And I'm done. And I'll confess to you, it's not an original thought. But I remember last year, the year before, I don't, Recall, but we had Brother McNeese with us preaching. He preached on the book of Ruth. And he brought up a very interesting point and thought. It's always stuck with me. You know, you hear those messages, they just stick with you. He said, if you could have seen a cut scene between Bethlehem and Moab, here's what it would look like. You would have seen this family living in sin and living in iniquity. You would have seen the darkness and wickedness of Moab on one side of the screen. But on the other side, you would have seen Bethlehem where people still loved and served God. On one side of the screen in Moab, you would have seen Naomi as she stood beside the freshly dug grave of her husband and her two sons. And you would have looked in Bethlehem, you would have found the farmer sharpening up his plow. As you looked 
On one side of the screen in Bethlehem or in Moab, you would have seen the girls weeping and you would have seen Orpah turn away and walk off of the pages of Scripture and into the abyss of nothingness. You would have seen the heartbreak in Ruth's eyes, not only for Naomi, but also for Orpah, who I'm sure she loved. On the other side, you would have seen in Bethlehem the sower thrusting his hand into the seed bag and gathering up seed to throw out into the field. You would have seen these weary women finally stretching and winding home to Bethlehem. You would have seen the crowds aghast at the damage that sin had done. And there, as those two split screens finally met, you would have looked on one side of town and you would have seen the tears stream down Naomi's face. But you would have looked out in the field and you would have seen the ripened and ready harvest in the fields of Boaz. So what are you getting at, preacher? I'm saying this. Things looked real bad in the land of Moab. But things were about to get real good in the fields of Boaz. Things looked hopeless in Moab. (laughs) But things were quite fruitful in the land and the house of bread. Let Let me tell you something. You may have some people that you love that are lost or backslid, and you say, Nothing is going to change. Nothing could happen. Nothing could help them. Let me just remind you, you may be looking at the wrong locale. As you look at their brokenness and their iniquity and their rebelliousness, don't forget that there's a Boaz that loves them. And there's a God that's got a plan and a purpose for everything that's taking place. Oh, it may look bad in the land of Moab, but next week we'll go into the fields of Boaz and we'll see God begin to work in the life of Ruth and Naomi.